Hermeneutics, developing purpose statements. The eighth principle of hermeneutics is developing purpose statements of a passage. And this is the eighth principle logically. That is, it follows the others. It makes sense of them. And I would like us to turn our attention to this eighth principle tonight on page 53 in your books. Page 53, the eighth principle is this. The goal of the interpreter is to discover why God put each passage in the Bible. That should be your goal when you read the Bible. Your goal should be this. Why? Why did he do this? What was he thinking? What was in his mind when he wrote this? That should be in your mind. And so that's what we're studying tonight. And I'm going to give you a number of categories of information so that you can search for these and find the answer to the question, why is this in the Bible? So let's start, first of all, with these presuppositions here. First of all, every passage of Scripture does have a purpose. We need to start with that. There is a reason that the Holy Spirit inspired a word or a sentence or a paragraph. And the ultimate goal of studying the Bible is answering the question, why? The non-Christian religions of the world either don't ask the question or they always get it wrong. But Christian, the Christian religion teaches us to ask, why? Why did God do this thing? Why does the Bible say that? And when we found that answer, we have found the key to good preaching. Which is why we are reading Preaching with Purpose by J. Adams. Because that book is a short book, what, 150 pages or so, all trying to answer the question, why? Why did God put this in the Bible? Or to give you the tools to answer that question for yourself. So a purpose statement is a statement that is an answer to the question, why did God put this in the Bible? So what I want to teach you tonight is how to write a purpose statement. That's the goal. I want you to come to the point where you can say, I know how to write a purpose statement. Why is this word, this verse, this book, why is it in the Bible? What was God thinking here? The best purpose statements answer that question by using the content from the Bible itself. So you don't need to use commentaries. You might, they might help you. You don't need to use a great library. You might, it might help you. What you need to do is to look at the fish That's principle number one. And then as you look at the fish, look at it in the light of all those other principles, in the light of the context, in the light of the history and culture, in the light of the grammar and the rules of language, in the light of comparing scripture with scripture. And then you need to look at the fish and and be careful before you get certainty. Make sure that you have good evidence. All seven 
of the first seven principles lead up to this. If you can't answer this question, you have not mastered hermeneutics. Did you know that grades are a new invention? They are a modern invention. When you finish your school and someone says, oh, he got six distinctions. And he was 94%. He got an A or a B. Or in America, we use something called a grade point scale, where if you get a 4.0, you got the best. And if you get a 1.2, you're a failure. Grades like that are a new invention. They came from Prussia. A man in America heard about the way the Prussian um, country tried to modernize their education by giving numbers to students, saying, all right, you've earned a nine. A better way to do it would be to, uh, the best kind of test is not the kind of test where you can mark out and say, this person got 94%, this person got 79%. The best kind of test is this, a blank piece of paper. And someone says, tell me why the lesson you learned is important. And let's see what they can put on that paper. And then to grade that, you don't say, well, he got a 9 out of 10. To grade that paper, we should say, all right, in these areas you were strong, in these areas you were unclear, and in these areas you were completely wrong. You contradicted yourself. So that would be the best way. The problem is that doesn't make it easy to give certificates to people. And today, we really want to give certificates. So if you get a seven, you get a certificate. If you get a six, no certificate. Well, in hermeneutics, there's nothing like that. All we can do is ask this. Why did God put that passage in the Bible? And then you've got to answer that question. And I'm sure you'll get at least partly right. But you might get part of it wrong. And your goal should be, and this lesson tonight will teach you, how to get more and more of that question correct. So let's look tonight at five categories. The audience, the introduction and the conclusion, the occasion, the repeated terms and themes, and then number five on page 55, the formal purpose statement. Those five are five categories, five buckets. And in each of those buckets, there's some important gold. I want you to go to each of those buckets and take out the gold if there is any in there. Does that make sense? Yes. If, if, if I said there, there's five buckets up here in front and I've put something in each of those buckets, <clears throat> you have to go up there and get it. That's what we're doing tonight. And then once you've done those five categories, then look at Roman numeral six. You will learn to write a purpose statement using these six rules. And then number seven, I've done it for you here as an example from the book of Ephesians. So my goal will be in this first hour tonight to finish up through Roman numeral six to show you the categories and then the rules and then in the second hour, we will look together at the book of Ephesians and we'll do it together. We'll take, we'll go to Ephesians and we'll open each bucket or box in the book of Ephesians and see if we can discover a purpose statement 
for the book of Ephesians. And that will be probably all that we will be able to handle tonight. Let's see how it goes. Number one, audience. Who was the book written to? That's our first question. Now, the main question to ask, was the original audience saved, lost, or a mixture? That's what you want to ask. Who is the audience? Are they Christians? Are they non-Christians? Or both? So in the book of Romans, are they Christians, non-Christians, or both? Romans. Who is Romans written to? Christians. Christians? Open your Bibles to Romans 1. I believe it's verse 7. Romans 1. Romans 1 verse 7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God and called to be saints. Question. Romans 1 verse 7. Is the audience of Romans saved or lost? They're saved. How do you know? It's right there in verse 7. They're beloved of God and they're called. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are Christians in the church. That question was a bit of a trick question. Are these people saved or lost? Saved. What about the third option? Are they a mixture? Are there some false Christians in this group as well? Maybe. Paul, when he writes here, is writing to people who call themselves Christians. Paul's writing to a group of people who consider themselves to be Christians, and he's actually going to give us some tests to see, you call yourself a Christian? Well, are you really? And so the first question we have to ask when we're determining the purpose of a book is, is this book written to people who call themselves Christians, or is this book written to people who are openly not Christian? That's the question. Can anyone think of a book that is written to people who are not openly Christian? Jonah. Jonah. Yeah, Jonah's written to the Ninevites. What about John? The Gospel of John. Who is the Gospel of John written to? The whole world. That the world would believe on Christ. Most of the letters in the Bible are written to Christians. But what about the book of Luke? Who's Luke written to? Theophilus. He was not a Christian. Luke is writing to him so that he'll become a Christian. Why don't you try that? Take the book of Luke when you find someone who's unconverted and say, my friend Luke, he's a doctor, and he wrote a book to his other friend to help him understand what it means to be a Christian. I wonder if you would be willing to read this book because I have a copy of my friend Luke's book. Would you be willing to read that book if I give it to you? And then see if they'll read the book because it's written to unbelievers. So, letter B. 
If the passage is a sermon from the Gospels, then the audience is usually more difficult to determine. When the audience is a crowd, Luke 14.25, is the group saved or lost or both? What about Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount? Go over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, who came to him? (laughs) This is not talking about his 12 disciples. This is talking about a great crowd of people. Are these people saved or lost? Are they calling themselves Christians or are they lost? They're a mixture of both. But they want to be. They want to understand. This is a group of people who are following Jesus, but they're not all born again. We know that because he warns them about going to hell in Matthew 7, verse 21. In the Sermon on the Mount, he warns them repeatedly about the fire of hell. So we have to look at the passage to determine who the audience is. As a rule, the content determines the purpose statement more than the audience. The audience is a good question to begin with. It will help you. It's a good teaching tool and teaching technique to tell people when you preach to say, wait a minute, the book of 1 Timothy, who is it written to? Christians and, in fact, pastors. The book of Matthew, who is it written to? It's written to the Jews. It's helpful to say that, but what's much more important or what the, cat- the categories we're about to examine now. Roman numeral two, introduction and conclusion. Does the author state or review his purpose at the beginning or the end? Some Bible books are going to tell us right at the front door or right at the back door why they wrote the book. I have examples there in the notes. The most famous example of a book that has the key at the back door is the book of John. Go there, John chapter 20. Let's look at John chapter 20, verse 31. John 20, verse 31. John 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Right there at the back of the book, at the back door, is the purpose statement. If you have a pen, you can draw a little key right there on your uh, Bible by verse 31. That's the key. Only a few books of the 66 have keys this clear. But this is the cle- the, uh, clearly, this is the key. How do we know this is the key that opens the book? How do we know? He says it. What does he say? What words tell us that this is the key? These have been written. These, in the ESV, does it say these things? These things have been written so that you might do what? 
And he's going to put that word twice in this verse so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you would have life through his name. He puts believe in there two times. So he starts very clearly. These things are written down. What are the these things? The, the book of John itself. John writes the book. He gets to the end and he says, all these things I wrote, I wrote them with this reason. So there's the purpose statement. So for books like John, you will find the purpose statement depending heavily on the conclusion. You can go throughout the book, but the conclusion is going to really have the key for you. Let's see an example where it's on at the beginning. Go back to the book of Luke. Go to the book of Luke. Or I could have gone to 1 John. 1 John has the key at the beginning. Go to the book of Luke 1. Jude also has the key right at the beginning. Verse 3. Luke chapter 1 and verses 1 to 4. Here's the introduction. Verse 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. That may mean that Luke is writing after Matthew and Mark. Because he already read Matthew and Mark. That may be why he wrote, for as much as many have taken in hand. He might be, that many might refer to who? Yeah, Luke starts writing and says, well, I know other people have written, but I'm going to write to you as well. Verse 2, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also. Why? Because I had perfect understanding of all these things from the beginning to write unto you in order, most excellent Theophilus. What is the first word of verse 4? That. That. I'm writing unto you that you would know. How can you get more clearly clear than that? Again, with your pen, you can just put a little key right there beside verse 4. I'm writing this that you would know. How much more clear could it be written? It's as if the Bible itself, it's as if Luke just scribbled a key right there in the side margin so that you would never forget. That's the key. Why is he writing? I'm writing so you would know something. What does he want you to know? The truth or the confidence or the surety or the certainty of all the things about Christ. That is the things he had been instructed in. Theophilus, you heard stories about Christ. I'm going to write you a book so that you will have certainty. Absolute certainty. Wow, that's very helpful. There's the key to the book. If you're talking to someone who says, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Tell them to go to what book? Luke, it's right there so clearly. There's our purpose statement in the introduction as John had it in the beginning. This category of data more commonly applies to discourses than it does to the epistles or even the prophets. Which category of data? Introductions or conclusions? What's our first bucket or our first box where we might find some gold? 
Audience. The audience. You ask, who's it written to? Well, that might tell me a lot. Usually it doesn't, but it might. What's the second bucket or the second box? Introduction, Introduction or conclusion. Look at, the, look at the front door and look under there and see if they left the key under the mat in the front, at the front door. Go to the back door and see if they hid it behind the light. There, there might be the key at the front of the back door. But these only build up to the third. The third category of data is the occasion. What was this book written for? What was this book written for? What is the occasion? An occasional letter is a letter in the Bible that had a certain event that inspired the letter. Can any of you think of something that was written in the Bible that was written because of a certain event? A certain event made this person write. Anyone think of one? Do you say Galatians or Galatians? That's exactly what I was thinking about. There's others. Galatians. Paul heard that the Galatians had false teachers, so he sat down and write, wrote off a letter. Can you think of another one? First uh, Peter about trials. Okay, there was persecution, Christian persecution. Yeah, that was an occasion. Another one. That's another one I was thinking of, 1 Corinthians. Paul hears that they're having a lot of problems, so he writes them a letter. What's the occasion? Philippians, what was the occasion there? Paul wants to thank them. He went, he went to his smartphone, he turned it on, and he saw a notification from his bank. And Paul's bank said, sent him a notification, 20,000 rand deposited from 1 Baptist Church of Philippi. And when Paul saw the deposit of 20,000 rand from First Baptist Church of Philippi, what does he do? He sits down at the table and writes. Well, actually, to be more precise, he sits down between two Roman guards in prison because this is a prison epistle. And he says, hey, uh, Claudius, can you pass me that pen? Or he usually wrote with an amanuensis or a secretary who would write the words for him. There are other occasional letters in the Bible and occasional books in the Bible. The book of Hebrews is occasional. The Hebrew Christians were beginning to fall away because of the persecution. And their friends and relatives are saying, come back to Judaism. Come back to the synagogue. And so the writer of Hebrews says, I've got, I've got to stop that. Romans? Thessalonians. Thessalonians is an occasional letter. Yes, Paul... Paul realizes they've got questions about the second coming, so he writes them a letter. And then he finds out, oh no, there's some lazy people here and some sinners who are, they need church discipline, so he fires off the second letter. All right, the point behind this is, this third category helps us to deal with the specific problems. But how are you supposed to use this category if you don't know what the occasions are. Go over to page 54. The following letters, that is, these 14 are occasional letters. They are clearly written in response to some great event or some issue in the church. And there I've listed 14 of them.
You could even say the books of Moses were occasional books. They were written to instruct the people of Israel while they were in the wilderness. Um, I don't know. Uh, there's a debate about that. Some people say that First John was written as an answer to the Gnostics. I'm not so sure about that because, and here's what I'm, that's the next point I'm getting to here is, so let me answer the question of, is First John an occasional letter? By asking, what does it matter? Or how do you know if a letter is an occasional letter? Here's the answer. You read the book very carefully. Read the book carefully. And the letters will tell you. So you do not go to your library and take off a book by Dr. Doctor and open up the page 64 and say, Ooh, 1 Timothy is an occasional letter. Oh, I'll say that Sunday. That will make me sound smart. If Dr. Doctor, who wrote that book, is a good doctor, then he will tell you, 1 Timothy is an occasional letter because Paul stationed Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And he realized that Timothy was a young man who had already been through some trials, and he was not an outgoing loud man. And he was going to have some difficulty with those people because Paul had to deal with the people at Ephesus several times. And there are some very good elders at that church, but there's also some guys that are going to give you some problems. I'd better help this young boy. I better write him a letter and at least not only will have my wisdom, but then he could take that letter and say to the people, look, I'm doing what Paul told me to do. How do I know that 1 Timothy is an occasional letter? Because I read 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 to 5. Five, where he tells them right up front, stop the mouths of those people at the church of Ephesus who are teaching the wrong things. Right there I know. And then I keep going to chapter 4 and I realize, oh, he's a young man. And then I go into chapter 5 and realize, oh, he's a young man who has, he has some health problems and he needs strength to be bold. And I go into chapter 6 And I can realize, oh, he's got a very diverse congregation. Oh, here is a young man going into a church that's diverse. And they've had the best preachers there already. Apollos had been there. Paul had been there. And now little Timothy is going to go be the pastor. How would you feel if you were called to be the pastor at Spurgeon's church? I can't can't do that. And And then someone writes you a letter full of wisdom. And you read that letter and say, I am nothing like these great men, but the power of God might come and give me help. That's what happened to Timothy. And how do we know it? Because we actually read chapter one. And then we read chapter four. And then chapter five. And then chapter six. So you determine the letter is occasional by looking at the book. So letter B in your notes there. That's what he said. The best way to determine the occasion is to read the epistle, looking carefully for details. The problem with 1 John, to get back to 1 John, that was the question asked, is 1 John an occasional letter? And I said, I don't think so, because there is discussion among certain scholars that says, well, 1 John was an occasional letter answering the errors of the Gnostics. That's why John opens the letter with, 
that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have looked upon, that which our hands have handled of the word of life. And they'll say, see, that's an answer to the Gnostics. Well, that's not very clear. Can I get more? Well, there's not much more. There's not much more evidence. Okay, but do we know it's the Gnostics? Somebody says, somebody deceiving, you have to touch and look and handle. It's not clear. It's not expressed. Yes, 1 John 4 does say that there are many false teachers in the world and there are antichrists. But doesn't that apply to every church? How do we know it's the Gnostics? Maybe it is the Gnostics. My point is that John didn't care to make that explicit. But he does say four times, these things I write into you, etc., these things are ready to you so your joy will be full, so that you will know that you have eternal life, so that you will not be tricked by those who try to deceive you. The occasion is only as important as the clarity of the evidence. And that gets us back to last week's rule. What's rule number seven? Look at the clearest evidence first. Hold your confidence in direct proportion to the evidence. So my answer to is first John an occasional letter, maybe. But I don't stand up to preach maybes. I stand up to preach God said this. And God did not desire to make it clear that first John is written as a response to the Gnostics. Maybe it was, but it's not important for us. How do we know that it doesn't matter whether first John was written to the Gnostics. How do we know? Because John doesn't make it clear. Because John doesn't make it clear. That's the way we know. Because the Bible is a logical book. If it's clearly in the book, that's what he wants us to know. He does not want us to know the secret things, but the things that he's actually revealed. Now we move on. The first three are important. The first three can help. You need to look at the first three categories. Category number four is by far the most important. Not even close. It is by far the most important. It is a continual thorn in my side to read books or commentaries or introductions to the Old Testament or to the New Testament that downplay category four. And I invite everyone who's listening to me, you decide if category four is very important. Category four is repeated terms, and not just repeated terms, but repeated what? Themes. Themes. Or to put it in a question, what would the question be, Nico? What is actually in the book? Now, why wouldn't that have more authority than all the other categories? And in a sense, category one, the audience, we know that by looking inside the book. Category number two, introduction and conclusion, we know that by looking in the book. Occasion, we only know the occasion by looking in the book. But the difference, in the, the difference between those first three categories and this, repeated terms and themes, is 
Rarely, uh, usually if you're going to have the audience, it will be in the introduction. Usually if you'll have the occasion, it will be connected to the introduction. The introduction is connected to the introduction. That is the first three categories are basically the introduction of the book. And let me give you an example of, of one of the ways this is completely twisted. And, and the fourth category is overwhelmingly ignored. There are commentaries written, and I've been given a number of these. I eventually did not keep them. But there are commentaries written that say, just like this. Who is 1 Corinthians written to? Tell me. Christians or non-Christians? Christians. Okay, then when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and it says, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor gossips, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then this commentary says, But we know that can't be going to heaven. Because the letter is written to who? So this must be talking about rewards once you actually make it into heaven. Did did you hear what I just said? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators or idolaters or drunkards or uh, adulterers or uh, effeminate or homosexuals or thieves, or covetous, or gossips, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's very clear. What is, what is the clear doctrine taught? Tell me. What is it? What is the doctrine that's taught in those two verses? The doctrine that's taught is sinners will not enter heaven. Those types of sinners will not enter heaven. Sinners will not. These kinds of sins will not go to heaven. They are not Christian. But then the man who says, category number one, the audience. Huh. These people are Christians. Paul's only writing to. Therefore, he's not warning us that if you call yourself a Christian and engage in fornication, you're a fake Christian. The person here is saying, the commentary says, no, 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 no. If you engage in fornication and call yourself a Christian, then you will not, quote, inherit the kingdom of heaven, which means you'll go to heaven, but you won't receive a great inheritance once you get there. Is that what the passage says? No, it says you won't. You're not getting it. You're out. Don't trick yourself. You're in great danger. If you call yourself a Christian and go on in this sin, you're lost. And this particular commentary says, no, look at the introduction. No, look at the audience. And the audience and the introduction override what's clearly in the letter itself. So even though the letter says, if you call yourself a Christian and you continue in fornication, you're not a Christian. They completely turned it backward by putting so much weight on the first two categories. So by far the most important is this question right here. What is actually in the book? 
Show me what's in the book. What are the words in the book? What happens in the book? Note the key words. The repeated terms or ideas. When you mark your Bible, look carefully. That's why this is, this is so closely connected with observation. Pay attention to find the words that are repeated. What words are being repeated over and over? Do not underline every word, but watch carefully until you find the word that is repeated. Now tell me, what is one of the key words that was repeated over and over and over and over, almost a hundred times in the book of John? Believe or faith. In English, it's going to look in two ways, either believe or faith. But it's the same Greek word or the same root, pistis or pistuo. So when you see that word, you should be a good reader. So you notice it's in chapter 1 and 2 and 3. It's in almost every chapter. I think there's only two chapters that it's not in. Chapter 18, I believe, and one other. The word believe is all through that book. If you miss the word believe, you miss the whole point. Because it was repeated over and over and over. What are one of the repeated words in the book of 1 John? There's several. What's one of the repeated words in 1 John? Abide. Abide. That's only in chapter 2 though, isn't it? Abide comes over and over. Did you know that sin comes over and over in 1 John? Also, a name or names for Jesus Christ. Jesus is referred to over and over, and so is the word sin. Also, if. If is found constantly. Or the one who, which is another form of if. If you do this, you will be rewarded. Or the one who does this will be rewarded. It's the same thing. If and the one who. Did you see what I just did there? Wait, that's very important. Did you catch that? I hope you weren't sleeping there. Let's rewind. If you're looking at your Bible and you see the word, let's go do it. Go, go right now to 1 John. Let's see it with our eyes. Go to 1 John 2. Ah, 1 John 1. What's the first word of verse 6? First John 1, verse 6. First word is if. What's the first, second word of verse 7? First word of verse 8. Verse 9. Verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do you see the word if in there? If we keep his commandments. Can someone read verse 6? What, 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 what did you say? The one who. The one who says he abides. What is the difference between if you abide and, or I'm sorry, if you say you abide or the one who says he abides? Is there any logical difference between if you say you abide or the one who says he abides? There is no difference. And when you are reading 1 John, you should mark them with the same color because they are 
the same unit of meaning, even though the words are not the same. And that's what, if we are not able to master this, we will struggle not only understanding the Bible, but understanding any book. We have to be able to say, what is the writer saying? And then look at another word that has different letters and say, wait, what is he saying here? Is this the same thing, all, not the same thing, or kind of the same? We, we're going to have to be able to do this constantly. And so first John gives us a great example because he's going to say if, and he's going to say the one who all the time. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 9. How does verse 9 start? Nico? Whoever. Is there a difference between if you say or whoever says? Go turn the light up outside, please. No. Caleb, right here. There's no difference between if you say and the one who says. So note the key words, the terms, the ideas that are repeated. You need to be very careful to notice synonyms. What is a synonym? It's a word that means the same. And then you need to be careful with antonyms. What is an antonym? It's a word that means the opposite. So this is going to be difficult. Sometimes in the Bible, you're going to find synonyms in a book. And sometimes you're going to find antonyms in a book. And both of them are going to help tell you what is the purpose of the book. So both synonyms and antonyms are important. In fact, all the words are important, and that's all we're trying to do. Look carefully. Look at the example, letter B, number one. Example from 1 Timothy. Look at those words that are used in each case. In 1 Timothy, faith, doctrines, doctrine, these things, reading. How many different terms are used? Faith, doctrines, doctrine, these things, reading. All of those mean the same thing. Each one of those is saying the same thing. Is that making the problem worse? Is that helping? (laughs) This same chapter also condemns the opposite. This is important. The terms lies, fables, doctrines of demons. Now when you compare those two lists, you see the point very clearly. He's interested in truth. And truth isn't even one of the words used. So it doesn't even use the word truth, but that's the point of the passage. And uh, example number three, most of the chapters in Romans have a repeated term or concept. You tell me if you know it. What is the repeated term in chapters one, two, and three of Romans? What is the repeated term in the first three chapters of Romans? Sin. 
over and over. It's, it doesn't use the word sin very much, but it, it talks about different sins in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 4 and 5, what is the repeated word used over and over? Actually, it's mainly in chapter 4. Faith. What's the repeated word found in chapter 5? One. What's the repeated word in chapter 6? Death, dying, or slave. Chapter 7. There's a repeated term in almost every chapter in Romans if you go right through them. So you need to ask yourself how the repeated terms are presented in the book. How does this book present the terms that are repeated? That's, that's how it is we, we determine what his, the author's theme is. What kind of ideas come back to his mind again and again? What things does he want to talk about? Category number five, page 55. What is the formal purpose statement? At least 11 books of the New Testament have a formal purpose statement inside. And these purpose statements are the key to interpreting the book. So I've listed them there. The book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. It's an introduction to the gospel. Luke 1, verse 4. We just read that. John 20, 31. We read that one. Acts 1, verse 8. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Ephesians 3.21, glory to God in the church. 1 Timothy 3.14, so that you can behave in church. Titus 1 verse 5, how to appoint elders. Jude 3, to defend the faith. And 1 John 5, to know that you are saved. I'm sorry, closing with Revelation 1 verse 1. So... This fifth category is very helpful, but most of the books of the Bible don't have it. A few books of the Old Testament have a key verse or a verse that explains, but most of the books in the Bible don't have it. So here are five categories. If you want to write a purpose statement, now let's go to the rules and actually um, see how we apply these, and then we'll take a break and come back and do it on the book of Ephesians. Rule number one, using the categories of data, those five buckets or boxes, the audience, the introduction or conclusion, the occasion, the repeated terms and themes, and the formal purpose statement. Using those five categories then, finish your research through careful observation. So, so go get those five buckets and read the book very carefully, putting things in each bucket. That's the first thing to do, letter A. Read the book carefully. Look at the whole fish. Remembering those five categories. What does the introduction say? Who is the audience? What is the occasion? What words and themes are repeated over and over? And finally, is there a formal purpose statement? Number two. Rule number two. Determine all the key ideas of a book. Be certain that you have not forgotten any key ideas or that you've added secondary ones, but make a list of all the ideas that are the key ideas in the book. Write them down in your paper. You might have 8 or 10 or 12. And then just like we did last week with exegetical certainty, start crossing off the ones that really aren't so vital as others are.
Letter C, ask how these ideas relate to each other. And here you can use the famous five W's. What, when, why, where, who. What, when, why, where, who. Do not be afraid to use that as a sermon outline. Just because it has been used before, don't be afraid of using a good tool just because it's been used before. The five W's, what, when, why, where, who, and the Puritans, I think, would add the H. What's the H? How. How How could you fix this problem? Letter D, rule number four. Reduce the book to one word or a phrase. Now that you've looked carefully at the book, you've tried to fill the buckets, you've tried to notice the things that are repeated the most, then ask yourself, Okay, if I was going to summarize this book in one word, what would I say? And don't say true. You've got to pick a word that summarizes the words inside the book. Rule number five. Now you've got one word. You've got one phrase. Maybe you would take in Romans, you would say salvation. Maybe you'd say the gospel. Maybe you'd say the way of salvation. Okay, now... In, in letter E, or rule number five, principle number five for writing a purpose statement, expand that out to a sentence that covers all the main ideas in the book. And then finally, number six, remember that discovering the purpose of a passage is hard work, but it is a skill that you can grow in, that you can increase Because it is a skill, you can get better. If it wasn't a skill, you would be hopeless. I taught a young man to drive today, and he did a bad job. One of the boys at the work stand. I let him drive, and maybe it was too muddy, or he did a bad job. He went off the road twice. Do I say to him, you'll never drive again? No, I say, okay, here's what you did wrong. Try again and change. Because driving is a skill. If you have ever heard a good preacher explain the Bible and you said, Wow, how did he do that? Or I could never do that. You need to remember, or perhaps you've forgotten, that studying the Bible is a skill. It's something you become better at if you practice. Especially, remember our our rule, practice doesn't make perfect. What makes perfect? Perfect practice practice makes perfect. If you practice the wrong way, you're going to be missing the goal every time. But if you have the right technique when you practice, you'll score. You just have to practice more. And here, with these five categories, we know these are the right five categories because this is a summary of everything that's written in the books. And the rules, you know those are the right rules because what do the rules say? Just look back at the book. Look at the Bible. Read it carefully. All right, are there any comments or questions as we close?